Good morning, church. Good to see you all again this morning, as best as we can see each other, uh, and to be with you, and for a very exciting close to our series here in the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's been an emotional and an amazing letter as Paul has unpacked so much for the church at Corinth. And, and there's been a lot of counsel from all different sides as he's worked through his issues. He's issued some very serious and stinging rebukes, as well as some really heartfelt and encouraging affirmations. And then there have been some very powerful and necessary correctives. And then I, as I hope we'll see this morning, uh, some very uh, soul-stabilizing exhortations as Paul comes to the close of this letter. Last week, as Pastor Jim uh, finished out his portion, he took the time to show us that Paul more or less summarized his real concern in writing this letter, not because of the factions themselves that had developed, because of those, those issues that had crept up, but because of what those issues do ultimately when it comes down to considering the church's call to be about the work of the Lord. So all the, all the issues that were affecting them had their greatest impact by producing a negative result when it came to that. And, and when it came to the two things that Jim reduced uh, Paul's thinking to, and I think he's quite correct here, that the work of the Lord is found first in encouraging believers in the faith, and secondly, in proclaiming the gospel to the lost. Both of those are, are like two sides of one coin. You can't do without the you can't do one without the other. You need both uh, as a cohesive whole. And so, as Paul comes to the end of this letter, and it, which I said has been a long and an emotional and important letter, as is very common with Paul, he brings his thoughts down to uh, a place of application. He doesn't lead us with leave us with just truth and and hope that that bare truth will go out and do something. He calls upon his readers, and so calls upon us, to say, this has to, to move beyond the theoretical and the doctrinal and the intellectual, and it's got to move into something else. So he is making application of all that he said earlier by pressing his readers to move beyond the intellectual. And that's something we all need to pay attention to when it comes to the preaching and the teaching of God's word. To just hear it with the ears is not sufficient. Uh, we have to take it into our hearts so that we're changed by it, so that we're moved by it. And it translates into what we think as well as how we live our lives. And if it doesn't make that complete journey, if it doesn't complete the circuit, we're no better off than if we'd never heard it at all. In fact, we might even be worse off than if we hadn't heard it. In the book of James, you don't have to turn there now. I'm going to have you turn to 1 Corinthians 16 in just a second because we want to read this morning's portion together. But in James chapter 1, picking up in verse 22, James really hits this point um, head on. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. To hear only and not act on it is self-deception. We're going to come back to that in a minute. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, but he looks at himself and then goes away and, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Those are important words. And, and this has been true throughout the scripture. Back in the Old Testament, when God was telling the prophet Ezekiel that he was going to have a struggle in the ministry that he had, and he, he did have a struggle in his ministry, um, God warns him and says this in chapter 33 to Ezekiel. As for you, son of man, your people, talking about the Jews, who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, oh, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. I mean, that is so indicative of what goes wrong with a church, with a believer, when we get into that place that we hear but don't do. And so as we come to this closing section of Paul's letter, verse 13 itself contains the core of what we're going to look at this morning. Five exhortations, closing exhortations to kind of seal off this letter and leave us with a direction to go in. Let me read that passage to you if you have your Bible handy. 1 Corinthians 16, we'll pick up in verse 13 and read down through verse 24. Uh, 13, again, contains the five exhortations right off the top. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss, something we couldn't take right now with the COVID-19 virus crisis, could we? I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love of the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And I might add, even before we really unpack these five exhortations, that these don't just apply to the Corinthians. They apply to us. They apply to every church and every individual Christian in every generation. We have to take these things to heart as necessities if, as Jim reminded us so well last week, we're going to remain faithful in doing the work of the Lord, both collectively and individually. So let's look at the first exhortation 
be watchful. Or we might translate it easily, be awake, be aware, be mindful, mindful of self and mindful of your surroundings and mindful of your circumstances. Before the word woke became a popular cultural word in our generation, the scripture called believers in every generation to a very different kind, a very specific kind of woke. That we're to be wide awake concerning certain realities. Realities that are vital to our individual spiritual health and that of the church as a whole. And there's three areas of watchfulness I want to touch on this morning. They all come out of this letter, and there may be others, but these three seem to be chief areas that, that we really need to focus on, that Paul wanted his, his readers to focus on and, and would be wise for us. First, the deceitfulness of sin. Secondly, the entrance, be watchful against the, uh, against the entrance of false teaching or erroneous teaching. And third, be watchful to maintain an authentic anticipation of the return of Christ. Let me unpack those three one at a time. And, and as I work through this first of the five exhortations, I'm going to spend a little more time in this first one because you'll see how they inform the others. And, and the others are built on these first um, this first exhortation to be watchful. To be watchful first for the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this is nothing new in the Bible. From Genesis chapter four on, we, we get this message and we get it very clearly and we get it even from the lips of God himself. You remember in Genesis four, that's where Abel and, and Cain had brought their sacrifices. Cain's sacrifice was rejected and so he was jealous of his brother, angry at his brother. And God speaks to Cain in his attitude at that moment and he, he says this in uh, verse four, uh, verse seven of chapter four. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Beloved, sin is always crouching at the door. Still, always. We, we have to be aware of it, that it's at the door of our hearts, wanting to, to bring us into subjection to itself again. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us of this so carefully. Uh, let me read it for you. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? We will deceive ourselves. We can't understand our own deceptive hearts and we desperately need intervention in that regard. Jesus brought this up several times with his disciples in Mark 14, 38. He told them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have, you have to be watchful because you will enter into temptation and, and, and you want to serve God, but man, our flesh is weak. Or in Luke 21, 34, he says, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day, which is the day of Jesus' return, come upon you suddenly like a trap. As fallen human beings, even the redeemed seem to have an almost endless capacity for self-deception. 
so as to justify all manner of sin that we entertain both in thought and in deed. How grateful then we need to be that he has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us, to remind us of this and to shed a light on it and bring us back to his word so that we're reminded over and over that this deceitfulness is there and we need to be on our guard. And so it is the word of God cautions us against the deceit of others and ourselves dozens of times throughout the scripture. And again, in three primary areas. The devil always seeks to deceive us that God is not for us and that sin will satisfy us rather than destroy us. And then the world. The world seeks to deceive us by making the material and the temporary more important and more valuable than the, than the spiritual and the eternal. And then there's our own hearts. Our own flesh argues us out of obedience to Christ and biblical truth so as to please our lusts above everything else. And you know, those lusts come in such a variety of, of ways, don't they? Uh, there can be the lust for safety, security, the lust for power, the lust for money, for personal recognition, for material goods, for reputation. You name it. And so we need to be on our guard. We need to be watchful of our attitudes and our habits and our spiritual state and our health and, and our own thought process because our thoughts can run away with us so easily. It might be worthwhile even this morning as we stop for a second and ask this probing question. I know I need to ask it of myself. How is your soul faring, beloved? And what are you doing about it? That's a necessity. That's watchfulness. And Paul reminds us this is so important. The Corinthians had all kinds of issues to be watchful for that he had brought up previously in the letter. But there are still things that we need to be watchful for as well. How about the church splitting into factions based around personalities and ministry styles? And being in conflict and strife, which Paul sees as a, a basic failure of spiritual maturity, of being immature. Seeking status in the church as more, and being more spiritual than others or wanting authority over others. Watchful against falling into the sexual permissiveness of their society and the morality of the day. How important is that for us? being watchful against taking a worldly attitude toward dealing with interpersonal issues and disagreements or disputes among Christians that result in us being litigious and taking each other to court. Being watchful against becoming overly strict and falling into asceticism, like prohibiting marriage as though somehow being single is more holy or, or promoting singleness because, uh, or, or promoting marriage because that's more holy. We have to be watchful. We'll fall off those edges. Uh, being watchful against buying into the world's standard of easy divorce and remarriage. Watchful against abusing Christian liberty in a way that would encourage a weaker brother or sister to sin against their own conscience. Watchful against uh, allowing every freewheeling worship environment that becomes confusing and chaotic and feelings-oriented 
and ignoring God's order for all things, especially, as he pointed out in the letter, a careless approach to the Lord's Supper. Watchfulness against focusing on getting to exercise our personal giftedness rather than concentrating on what might be best for other people's spiritual growth in Christlikeness. Watchfulness against becoming lone rangers rather than needing the connectedness to the body of Christ and and having a a sense of responsibility toward one another spiritually. Uh, Watchfulness against judging or demeaning other Christians who don't share our exact convictions on certain issues that aren't central to salvation. Watchfulness against leading duplicitous lives where we're one thing at work or one thing at home and another thing in the church. Be watchful, he says. We can fall into any of these, the same as the Corinthians at any given time if we aren't careful. So be watchful first uh, about the deceitfulness of sin, but secondly, be watchful regarding erroneous teaching. Teaching that not only leads people into untruth, but, but even to denying saving truths, necessary truths like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. As Jesus warned the disciples in Matthew 16, he warned them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He clarified that later and said, let me tell you, that leaven is their teaching. They have a particular area of teaching and and you have to beware of it because it's contrary to scripture. And that carries over again into other places in the New Testament. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, Peter has to write about this very same issue. Listen to what he says in the first three verses. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So watchfulness against the deceitfulness of sin, watchfulness against false teaching creeping into the church, and thirdly, watchfulness so that we have a genuine anticipation for the return of Christ and the consummation of the ages. Again, we turn to the words of Jesus here. In Matthew 25, 13, he warns the disciples, Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. I know lots of people love to prognosticate on this, but it isn't true. Jesus warns the disciples themselves. Don't get swallowed up in that stuff. Be watchful because you don't know when he's coming. Or in Matthew 24, he he warns all those who are in, in light of his return to be watchful here. Listen to what he says. Therefore, stay awake, be watchful. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if a master of a house had known in what part of the night a thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Failing to live today as though heaven is the final goal, but that this life is everything instead. Man, when we go there, we have to be watchful. That can eclipse the the return of Christ and its reality and anticipation of it can be eclipsed by the present. 
Okay, first exhortation is be watchful. Second exhortation, and this will be shorter. Stand firm in the faith. Second exhortation, stand firm in the faith. And note carefully what the text doesn't say. The text doesn't say stand firm in faith, as though that's an abstract thing, but stand firm in the faith. So the caution is not against, the caution is against failing to learn or letting go of essential Christian truth. And this can happen in two common ways. First, failing to understand God's plans and purposes, the way that he's revealed them to us in his word and committed them to us. Or secondly, accepting as Christian, in scare quotes, those things that are in fact contrary to the faith, the things that were once for all delivered to the saints. You remember Jude 3 addresses that. Jude wrote this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That includes avoiding syncretism or the blending of Christianity with other belief systems. No right-minded Christian argues that people ought not to be free to believe as they wish. People can believe what they want to believe. But at the same time, we have to be careful not to compromise on the essentials of the faith, to major on the majors and not on the minors, and, and to rehearse the basics over and over again. Concepts like regeneration, uh, justification, uh, imputation of Christ's righteousness, sanctification or growth in grace, the resurrection, glorification, what awaits us in the resurrection, the truth of substitutionary atonement, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrines of Jesus' virgin birth and his, his both deity and humanity. So we have to go back at times and ask ourselves, hey, do I understand the key concepts and doctrines of the Bible? And do I know why they're important? The Corinthians had lost some of this and it became a pointed reality among them as some of them were even denying the very resurrection of the dead. Okay, so be watchful, secondly, and then stand firm in the faith. Thirdly, act like men. And again, you've got to look at what the text doesn't say as well as what it says. The text doesn't say act like males. <laughs> this is not about sex. The, the text is about a masculine spirit in terms of being valiant and brave in the face of persecution or opposition. Uh, Paul gives his own example of this in the, the section that, that Jim covered last week in verses 8 and 9. He touched on it. Listen to what Paul said when he, when he wrote this. He said, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Do you get that? Facing adversaries to Paul was not a, a signal to run, but a signal to stay and continue the work. Act like men. We see this as basic to the Christian life in all ways, don't we? This is what the Spirit is producing in us. He wants that quality in every one of us. You look at the life of Jesus in this and you see that he had 
30 years of silence and then 40 days in the desert being tempted, but that prepared him for his three years of ministry. He had to remain firm. He didn't leave off when he wasn't used right away. He didn't veer off when he was enticed by the enemy and offered the the kingdom in a shortcut manner. And he didn't run off when he was faced with the cross. No, he acted the man. We need not to be influenced by winds of doctrine. We need to be careful that they don't swallow us up, not negligent of necessities and not running away. And given our current world situation, can anything be more timely? Every time I watch a television commercial, I get petrified. Every medication seems to have side effects that are worse than the disease. Yes, I quit smoking. That's true. But I also have bleeding from the eyes and suicidal thoughts and hostility and agitation. I bruise easily. I have slurred speech. I've lost my hearing. I have kidney failure. But I've quit smoking. Everything will kill us, right? That's what we hear every day, especially right now during this current crisis. So the economy is going to bury us and violence is going to rule the world and secret societies and conspiracies will bring us all down into the dust. But we're to act like men. We're called not to lose heart and to remain full of heart and hope. In this exhortation to act like men, he's also saying some negative things too, isn't he? He's saying, don't act like cowards, taking our role of leadership in the world, speaking to the world without fear. And don't act like animals who mindlessly live out their existence, but but instead we need to fully engage and assume the dignity of being made in the image of God. And don't act like, like the angels, There's the elect angels who don't need redemption. We can't act like them. And there's the fallen angels who can't be redeemed and we can't act like them either. And we can't act like children stuck in immaturity. But instead, we need to step into spiritual adulthood. Act like men. Fourth, be strong. Or even more pointedly in the original, become strong. Do the things that make for being strong spiritually, as opposed to capitulation under peer pressure from the world and the flesh and the devil. We have to cite Jesus here again, don't we? Uh, He remained strong even when he was disbelieved, mocked, opposed, misunderstood, abandoned, and betrayed. He, He made himself and kept strong, strong in the truth of God's word, strong in the power of the Spirit. None of those things could make him cave in. None of them could make him call it a day or or dissolve in tears. So beloved, we need to remember God's plan and purposes that all of this is on track to final consummation. Don't forget his sovereign hand in placing you in circumstances that are best designed to challenge the sin in your heart, to increase your need to trust in him, to ruin your taste for this life so that you'll desire the life to come more and to pray and to believe his promises. Engage in being with the saints and and encouraging the saints and not falling into perpetual bemoaning the world's condition. It doesn't take any talent to complain. 
It takes something of looking beyond and, and focusing on Christ to live in hope and joy and, and promise. Read books that draw you closer to heaven and to growing in the character and the image of Christ. Feed your soul on health-giving material, especially when you feel yourself getting fearful or doubtful or hopeless or cynical. Nothing makes you stronger than knowing God's truth, than resting in the finished cross work of Christ. Stand, in other words, standing on the gospel, in trusting God's promises and in relying on the indwelling spirit. And again, this is something that's picked up in other places in scripture, like Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then our last exhortation, let all that you do be done in love. Build your life around knowing the love of God and being the means of others experiencing that love at your hand. Think about it. What, what did Jesus do that he didn't do out of love for the Father and love for us? Ephesians 2 or Ephesians 5 2 picks this up. And walk in love. How? as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we've seen many a time in Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit is love and one cannot love without being and displaying those things that are there. In order to love, I must, I must have and display joyfulness. To be being and displaying the seeking of peace being long-suffering with others and in life's providential circumstances, being and displaying kindness, being and displaying uprightness, expressing gentleness, always striving to master self-control. And, and here's a good question to ask. Is this what your family experiences at your hands? Or your coworkers? or those you just encounter casually? Or do you imagine yourself instead a dispenser of God's judgment? He's the judge. We're meant to be the means whereby those around us experience these wonderful traits and know about his grace. After all, nothing is more in concert with God himself who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And nothing will so heal and energize the church as when we overflow with love for one another, aiming at each other's spiritual best before the throne of God. I think Paul might have summed up this entire letter in these words, this fifth admonition, let all you do be done in love. There's a great story told by the fourth century church father, Jerome. He said that he received this as the most reliable tradition concerning the apostle John. And, and he could trace it back. And when John was, was nearly a hundred years old, was quite aged, he was, he was unable to get to church. And so his, some of his disciples would gather around him and pick him up and carry him to church on Sunday. And when he did, he repeated again and again, the text says, this exhortation. Little children love one another. 
this is the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, it is enough. If we would only love each other with the sacrificial love of Christ, considering each other's souls, because we can't love without loving the soul, to think about what's best for each other before God, then all these other things would take care of themselves. Now, before we close, there's one last statement in this passage that we can't neglect. It's not one of the five exhortations. It stands on its own, but it is a very powerful and sobering and categorical statement. It's found in verse 22. Look there with me. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. You know, sometimes you can read something in God's word that you've read a multitude of times before that suddenly hits you with fresh force and just takes you up short. And that was true for me as I was working through preparation for this portion again. I needed to let the gravity of these words sink in, and I hope they will for you too. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That is a really sobering and searching verse. We're prone to talk about individual faith by that term alone, by faith or belief. And and many claim to believe in God, to believe in Christ, to believe in the Bible, to believe in the gospel. But bare belief is only one side of the coin. If there is no genuine love for the Lord, no desire to see him, to be with him, to delight in him, and especially to find heaven, that place where we'll see and experience his unveiled glory, if that's not a motivating factor in our hearts, whatever else we may profess to believe, we're still accursed. This is a deeply necessary consideration. Paul says it in the most stunning terms here. He does not say if one has no love for the Lord, they need help, but that they're actually accursed. And beloved, we need to search ourselves in this regard. Many, if not most, desire heaven, or at least their concept of it, in the sense of an existence without the scars and the plagues of sin, or simply as a pleasant alternative to hell. But do we desire heaven because we love him and want to be with him? Yes, it's true. We, we groan with all of the creation for the day when the fall's effects will all be mitigated. Second Timothy's clear on that. But to long to see the face of the one who died for us, to so contemplate the resurrection and the return in terms of comprehending that seeing his glory is so magnificent that everything we might have here and now or in the most perfect of imagined worlds is nothing in comparison. One of the most plain things written on this topic is a short portion by J.C. Ryle. Let me just quote it to you. It's it's a, a long paragraph, but it's really worth hearing. Listen to Ryle, quote, Most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. It's common to hear people saying on their deathbeds, I only want the Lord to forgive me my sins and take me to rest. 
But those who say such things forget that the rest of heaven would be utterly useless if we had no heart to enjoy it. What could an unsanctified man do in heaven if by chance he got there? Let that question be fairly looked on in the face and fairly answered. No man can possibly be happy in a place where he is not in his element and where all around him is not congenial to his tastes, habits, and character. When an eagle is happy in an iron cage, when a sheep is happy in the water, when an owl is happy in the blaze of noonday sun, when a fish is happy on the dry land, then and not till then will I admit that the unsanctified man could be happy in heaven. And who would want to spend eternity with Christ if they have no genuine and compelling love for him? For after all, being in the presence of Christ is the very essence of heaven itself. So I have to ask you this morning, do you love him? Not do you know about him, do you understand him, do you understand the doctrine surrounding him? Do you love him? Not just the idea of him. I, I know none of us loves him as much as we ought, as much as he deserves, nor as much as even we're probably capable of. But if we have no love for him and who he is and, and not just for what he's done, then, beloved, we're still lost, still in the gall of iniquity, still in need of saving grace, grace that always births in the heart of the individual a love for him who we've not yet seen. Beloved, if you find a lack there, then, then pray that you might love him. Pray for the enlarging of your heart, for an ever-increasing capacity to see him and know him and cherish him and delight in him. And to find that love for him the strongest of all motivations in all that you do. I, I found myself crying out as I was going through this, Holy Spirit, fill us with a renewed and ever stronger and clearer love for Christ Jesus. Fill us with him today. Two closing words for you that don't yet know Christ savingly. We need to remind you that these exhortations, these five that we've looked at, are not a formula for salvation or acceptance with God. In truth, apart from the indwelling spirit of Christ, these are completely unattainable as they're given to us. No, we come to Christ in faith, trusting in his sacrifice on our behalf, so that we can enter into this kind of life. This life is the domain of the believer. And so we call you to leave off your self-government, to repent of being your own highest authority and come and bow the knee to the one who truly is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He alone is able to save you because he alone was able to pay the penalty for your sin with his blood on Calvary's tree. And believer, crying out for and looking for the power of Christ's indwelling spirit, let us enter into this life, this life that he died to, to purchase for us. Uh, we want to enter into it as he grants us an existence on this earth that's wholly foreign to our, our natural abilities and outside of ourselves. This is what he's called us to. And ascended on high, 
and taken his throne to pour out his spirit that we might fully partake of. May we enter into it fully. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've covered a lot of high and important things. And as we come to the close of this letter, it's very searching. We want to understand these things and to live in them. To truly walk in these exhortations that you've placed before us in your word. To not just be intellectual Christians, but those who walk in truth, knowing the fullness of your spirit and and seeking to serve you. So for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, I pray that there would be that renewed sense of of bringing all this down and coming to this place where we are watchful and standing firm in the faith and and being careful to to pursue those things that, that are in concert with what you have saved us for. To be strong, to act like men, to let all that we do be done in love. And for those who don't yet know you savingly this morning, we pray for the working of your spirit right now to draw them to yourself and to create in them a love for Christ that they can never produce on their own, that they might know you, serve you, be forgiven, adopted into the family, and made new creatures. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you today, beloved.